1: Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's
2: code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Soho ditches Alfresco dining as Brick Lane turns car-free. A tragic road death sparks new protests over cycling safety. Battle lines drawn over social homes or green spaces. Chloe Phelps leaves Croydon's common ground architecture. And we ask what this year's RIBA awards say about architecture in the capital. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. Our special guest this week is Ruth Lang. Ruth is an architect, writer, historian, and head of critical practice at the London School of Architecture, the LSA. Welcome to the show. Hi. Our top story this week has been covered by City AM, My London, and Time Out. It's all to do with the changing ways in which we inhabit the streets as a result of the pandemic. For many areas of the capital, COVID 19 signalled the start of a pedestrian takeover. Countless residential roads exchanged cars for bikes, scooters and walkers, swapping combustion engines for healthier modes of active transport. Not limited to the outer boroughs, this car-free fever swept across London, taking even the most central of locations by storm. Soho, the heart of the city's west end, closed off its streets to cars, becoming almost entirely pedestrianised during the pandemic. In this area... Al fresco dining became the new norm to comply with social distancing rules, seeing Londoners flocking to Greek, Dean and Old Compton streets to enjoy the outside eating experience. Westminster City Council has however recently announced that this will all be coming to an end later this month, with traffic set to be reintroduced to these central London streets at the end of September. Campaigning from the borough's Labour opposition cited extreme noise and the, quote, repeated violation of social distancing rules as reasons for the scheme to come to an end. Commenting on this decision, John James, a member of the Soho Business Alliance, said the reversal of the area's alfresco permission would send the area back into an effective lockdown. He added, quote, History tells us that hospitality can be a leading force in driving economic recovery. Soho needs alfresco to survive, and we simply wouldn't be here without it. Meanwhile, other areas of London are instead embracing the move to banish cars. The iconic brick lane is to become traffic-free on weekends and on Thursday and Friday evenings, encouraging cafes and restaurants to spill out onto the streets. The local authority, Tower Hamlets Council, is hoping this move will provide a much-needed boost to the businesses, improve safety and reduce pollution in the area. So Ruth, what's this all about? Why are some areas of London introducing pedestrian only areas uh, while others are axing them all together? Uh, why are we seeing such a disjointed pattern across the city?
3: Well, I think it's a really interesting question that obviously there are some areas where this was introduced a lot earlier on and that they've seen the benefits, but also be, they've seen a lot of the kind of downsides to this as well. And there's been pushback from a lot of the residents who feel like their areas changed. It's not necessarily what they signed up to. Um, But obviously it's very driven by market forces Um, and I think it's really difficult to balance these things against each other because obviously we need to have places that are really great to live but we also need places that are going to keep the economy going at the same time. Um, And I think this has just revealed huge tensions that we've had over the last couple of months. Um, I mean, for me, in South London, there's been a huge pushback against these low-traffic neighbourhoods, the LTNs, where people have been vandalising planters. I mean, if you can imagine people start vandalising planters as this, like, kind of focus for ire, it seems almost perverse. When you've got, like, really safe areas for people to play, um, people are able to cycle because they don't have the kind of, like, potential threat of the cars around them. But I think a lot of these... are. uh, these areas are perceived as having benefits for like posh areas, and areas that the traffic's being moved to is, and they're really worried about um, the kind of extra noise and pollution that's coming with that, are main roads, which are usually cheaper to begin with. So it's affecting different kind of communities. I mean, on one hand, you've got councils who are doing things like building an entire mound made out of scaffolding for £6 million in Marble Arch to draw back public to the area, whereas we've got this very quick, easy win about using the streets for something which they're not usually used for. I mean, there's a brilliant Hermann Hertzberger photograph that I'm always showing students about the two ladies who are squeezed in between cars because, you know, we want open space. We want to be outside buildings. We want to be on the street. We want to see each other again. Um, and be part of that street life um, but it's really difficult I think to reconcile that when you've got a city which is so based around the car.
1: i no, was just thinking like obviously what's so extraordinary about this is that you've got Westminster which is a conservative-led council and then the Labour opposition are the ones saying no get rid of the pedestrianisation then over in Tower Hamlets it's a complete other way around so it's a, it's a Labour-led council saying we're going to pedestrianise. Uh, brick lane and what's interesting if we think about the history of london is that like clearly london has gone through transport revolutions like at some point a lot of the roads were reconfigured to be much better for cars like things like uh, electric trams were ripped up to create more spaces for cars and like uh there was clearly some kind of like top level political consensus that allowed this like what i would say is quite destructive uh change to happen but like here we are right now and we've got like these kind of epic change of like the pandemic and the, all the impact it's had on our lives uh, and yet there isn't really any you know despite this impacting communities so much as you say there isn't really any sort of political uh high-level leadership on it i mean do we need more of a co- cohesive plan uh, for the whole city uh, right now, or should this be continue to be allowed to be um, given over to like individual councils uh, for them each to decide?
3: This is a subject which is very close to my heart. I was uh, starting my PhD. Gosh, about eight years ago, I was really looking at how London County Council architects were able to sort of work with this incredible level of ingenuity. Now, whether you see that as being architecturally successful or not is another matter. But I was really interested about the kind of agency they had. And the turning point in terms of the architecture of the city post-war was this County of London plan that was um, compiled in 1943. And that was actually obviously before peace was assured at the end of the war and so you had all these people who were working uh really kind of thinking about the communities that they wanted to build and thinking about the problems that they had in london at the time and how they could eradicate them and i think there's a kind of misconception about how the county of london plan was um a response to the war that it was taking advantage of a lot of the bomb damage whereas actually before the war all of these planners and architects were holding their hands up and saying like this is a mess like we really need to do something about it um and so there was an opportunity from the fact that obviously industry was paused there was a lot of rebuilding that needed to happen there was this huge influx of population that they needed to accommodate that they were able to draw up a plan which was truly radical and there were lots of things in that which are and remain controversial with things like the um
1: the giant motorway the giant motorway box
3: (laughs) well i mean yeah the the ringways the west way the um lots of road circulation and the removal of industry were really quite seismic changes to um, the city of London. Now, obviously, one has a very positive change, the fact that we were able to move a lot of those toxic industries out from the centre of the city, but also thinking about how we needed to get those transport links around. And there was a direct impact on the residents who were there. There were all those campaigns against these road improvements. But imagine what it would be like if they hadn't been done, if they hadn't taken that opportunity further back. Um, And... What the consequences would be for that. So this higher level idea about how the whole of London works as an ecosystem is incredibly important in terms of how we're planning. And if we leave it purely to commercial demands, then we end up having only commercial needs served at the end of the day rather than the social needs of the city.
1: And I think that's a really interesting point to sort of come back to that idea of alfresco dining and how you kind of introduce that as being a kind of market driven response. And like, certainly, I'd be quite interested to hear your experience of alfresco and recent alfresco. I think for me personally, I I recently went to Venn Street in Clapham, had a a meal, but that's like been alfresco for, for years and years and years. Um, are there any pedestrianised areas across London that you've experienced perhaps since the pandemic? Um, do any of them work really well? Can you recommend any to our listeners?
3: I mean, I have to say I am one of the noisemakers probably in who has been out there using those streets and it has been really glorious, I think, to be able to be out um, in the streets sort of bumping into people again, not literally, hopefully. I've spent most of the time actually meeting up with friends and going for long walks and sitting by the river and going to parks. But the fact that, lose aren't available so it's not ideal but that's also a problem that a lot of people are facing who you know have long-term illnesses like we we have been confronting these issues now because commerce has not been providing it but if you have long-term health issues and children things like this you realize the kind of infrastructure that you really need on a regular basis There was a really interesting point actually about how a lot of this, uh, like the pedestrianization of streets, we see as being inherently beneficial, but there was a journalist called Katie Pennick who showed back in May this like, really shockingly negative impact it has on her as a wheelchair user. And she's regularly disregarded and told that she has to go around. Like, even people leaving bins out in the middle of the street, she's not able to get through. And it's the same with anyone who's using um, AIDS for visual impairments, things like this. Um, and so I think we really do need to bear these things in mind if we're going to create a truly equitable like outdoor experiences alfresco experience it can't be at the expense of certain demographics of society so i think you know we really need to develop a greater sense of empathy for the ways that all users use our cities rather than just thinking about you know what is the aspirational experience um that i think a lot of us are kind of signed up to
1: absolutely and i think certainly like living in a city like london where so much uh sort of economic imperative is allowed to uh, override the needs of communities, particularly in, in recent decades, where you can see like an enormous amount of development in places like Nine Elms, for example, which doesn't always really look like environmentally or socially particularly uh, sustainable. Um, so certainly when we think about this, you know, the future of London's high streets and how we get to that point of getting that empathy in that you were describing, um, you know, is this, you know, what 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 do you think they could look like uh, as we go on? How do we get there as well? You know, is that about politics or is that a kind a design-led approach or both?
3: I mean, I think this is something that we've been questioning even before the pandemic. There was some brilliant work about seven years ago by We Made That, which is still available, still relevant, still needs acting upon, Um, and also followed up by the current work led by Gort Scott and Mariana Mazzucato. Um, about how high streets can create a sense of resilience and i think a lot of that is about listening it's about retaining character about respecting the demographics who are there but also thinking about like new uses for what we want from our high streets as well and there isn't one solution for all sites so you have to really kind of like listen and get under the skin rather than just impose something I think the most worrying thing facing the high streets at the moment that Robert Jenrick really needs to rethink is about the flip from commercial to residential and about how detrimental that is to the community. Because, I mean, shops do not make good dwellings. They're designed for show and they're designed for storage, but they're not really designed for living at all. And of course, the more shops you lose, the more car use you're dependent upon to be able to get to those things which are now lost and then pushed out, such as the shops, the banks, restaurants. And it actually creates fewer opportunities for people to meet each other and bump into each other on the street, which is the basis of a community. And if you look at somewhere like the Lansbury Estate in Poplar that was built as this model estate and used as the in the Festival of Britain, which of course we're celebrating the anniversary of this year, um, the design of it was the first pedestrian precinct that was supposed to be able to give you a really safe area where you'd meet, in, meet your neighbours. So all of these people who are living in flats and houses in the local area would really get to know each other and form really strong community bonds because they would spend that time bumping into each other, stopping for a cup of tea, you know, going shopping, just wandering around, going to the market. And that's why it had such a really strong community sense. Um, So I think it's really important that we think about ideas of social inclusion, integration, also lower carbon lifestyles and the fact that, you know, we need to not only kind of improve our built fabric, but we also need to decrease our reliance on moving around so much and really think about the kind of adaptive reuse of historic buildings and the role that that can play within that.
1: You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show, so if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes, and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign, and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our next story involves the tragic death of the cyclist and paediatrician Marta Kravitz, which was covered by the BBC Evening Standard and the cycling website road.cc. Marta was killed by a heavy goods vehicle on a notorious blind spot at a junction near Hoban tube station as she cycled to work earlier this month. Six other cyclists have died on the same junction, which is a key cycling corridor in the past decade, including the RIBA fellow and architect Francis Golding who was killed at the same site back in 2013. At the time of the inquest in 2014, the coroner commented on the surprising lack of action taken by the local authority Camden Council to address safety issues which had so clearly been highlighted by the numerous incidents of collisions involving both pedestrians and cyclists in this spot. In response to this latest horrific accident, the London Cycling Campaigns, LCC, has organised a number of protests to highlight the lack of action taken to prevent these deaths. The campaign's recent die-in saw crowds of cyclists descend on the lethal crossing, laying down on the tarmac in an emotional and visually striking protest, highlighting the consequences of road safety for cyclists. On the 8th of September, the group is staging another protest, this time a group ride through several of London's deadliest junctions, again drawing attention to the lack of cycling infrastructure on some of the city's most popular cycling routes. As more people have taken to two wheels during the pandemic, the number of fatalities on the road have also increased. Those killed or seriously injured in 2020 increased by 12% from the previous year. Six cyclists were killed in 2020, up from five in 2019, while the number suffering serious injury increased from 773 to 862. So, Ruth, it's really shocking to hear these statistics, especially when considering the number of deaths and serious injuries at a single crossing and the warnings going back years about the need to improve its layout. There's a huge amount of messaging from local and national governments about the health and social value of active travel. Uh, so why is Lon- one of London's most influential central boroughs seemingly failed to take fatal risk to cyclists seriously?
3: I think a lot of these issues come from a continuation of what we've been discussing earlier, that we need this oversight away from commercial imperatives. I think um, there's a lot of funding to be able to reconsider about the kind of routes that these uh, traffic arteries need to take that needs to come from above given about how cash strapped councils are at the moment i mean for one particular council to be able to take issue on this i think it is particularly difficult there are probably some quite small scale interventions which they really should be implementing immediately about the you know the phasing of uh, the pedestrian and cycle movement through those junctions um but also thinking about joined up thinking across boroughs so rather than displacing this issue from one place to another and then causing more catastrophes elsewhere where they're not really prepared for it really thinking about how can we collaborate across those uh, borough boundaries to really address this problem but I think also at the moment there's a lot in the news about how reliant we are on lobbies these days and maybe we're really looking to solve the wrong problem by solving the traffic junction problem and really what are the realistic alternative approaches that we could take to sourcing is there a kind of much more kind of locally focused thing that will stop this demand on the roads in general which obviously has other impacts on uh, like air pollution as well as the kind of danger that we face in the heart of our cities. And it is quite perverse that, you know, these are serious arterial routes that are running through the centre of London. And we're expecting tourists and school children and commuters and pedestrians and everyone to sort of be sharing that space.
1: One of the things you notice when you're a cyclist in London, you can't big draw cliches and stereotypes about road users because they're really different each place you're in, right? So if you're in central London, it might be delivery vans and taxis and buses. Um, and areas like like this intersection in Hoban um, might be particularly dangerous because there isn't very good transport in the Midtown area, the sort of Hoban district. You know, turning, turning to cyclists, when you're a cyclist, yeah, you know, there is perhaps a bit of a sort of cliche, perhaps unfair image of the London cyclist. It's a bit broad brush, but it gets kind of applied across the board. But, yeah, it seems like when you sort of step back, you know, we mentioned some of the, the media and the coverage of these things. There is... um. Uh, cyclists themselves sometimes do find them in in quite sort of divisive rows you know the, the sort of culture around cycling and the way it's covered on social media for example like there was a big twitter campaign to do with cyclists jumping red lights and whether other cyclists should sort of sh- shame them um there's also rows about cycling in double file or whether or not people should wear helmets and hives vis and things like that i think you know do you think as cyclists we all just need to show a bit more solidarity uh, with each other to really sort of move things forward or does something like these LCC uh, die-ins actually show that the solid solidarity is already there? You know that this is a remarkably unified group of people who could could get change working together.
3: Yeah, I think it is really interesting because um, as a cyclist, I think you do feel kind of squeezed in between the gap of, you know, you're you're not a car and you're seen as being a bit of a nuisance by people who are driving cars. You're not a pedestrian and you're seen as a bit of a nuisance by pedestrians as well. So I feel like you're always like kind of squeezed in the middle. Um, And then within that, of course, you've got all the various tribes of cyclists who you know, it seems to be competitive in its own right. The kind of lycra clad Brompton riding commuters and me on my like 60 year old bike with tweed coat flapping everywhere is probably not making many friends. And then, of course, you've got people who are on Santander bikes. Okay, so I think there are definite mindset issues, and that you know, issues like jumping red lights is seen as being inherently bad, but I know a lot. I don't do it, but I do know a lot of people who do it because they're worried about the kind of pressure of the traffic that's behind them and they kind of want to get ahead of that. And people who are telling you that you can't be in double file on the roads, whereas actually in the Highway Code, I think it's Rule 66, says that, you know, you should you should be more than two abreast but, and you should be in single file on narrow roads. But of course we're in London. So the Highway Code actually sanctions a lot of these things, which we're told we're not allowed to do. So I think the idea that roads are for cars is ultimately... Very worrying the fact that you know people st- still think that it's road tax rather than car tax that they pay, so there's this mindset issue about the fact that like, they should have priority but there was a campaign I saw years ago that was getting lorry drivers to uh, go on a bike around town, and it really changed the perception about the thinking like you know why is that person pulling out? why are they here, why are they sat there and once you take go out of the cab and actually down onto the road, you realize like, gosh, that is really close. That felt way too close. Being able to have that empathetic relationship, and of the, having the experience of being in the other person's shoes, I think really did improve their awareness and the kind of. Um, the generosity that they were able to offer on the road. And I think that's the situation that we really need to get to, that we need to be careful and generous and empathetic with each other, regardless of what position we might take or what status we might have.
1: Our next story comes from The Guardian. It's all to do with a a growing backlash over some local authorities' plans to build thousands of new council homes on Greenland and existing estates. Southwark Council in particular has been met with substantial resistance from Peckham locals who have been protesting the transformation of Jocelyn Street Park into a major development comprising 120 new homes, 96 of which will be council dwellings. Officially a brownfield site, the area offers access to green space for people living just minutes from one of the borough's most polluted roads. The council has argued new homes for social rent are desperately needed to house the thousands of families stuck in overcrowded accommodation or bed and breakfasts. More than 15,000 households are on the waiting list for housing, uh, meaning the borough's extensive network of more than 215 parks, green spaces could potentially be drawn upon to accommodate this huge demand. Down the road at Bell's Gardens Estate, the council is planning to regenerate some large communal green spaces, which serve to compensate the flats for their lack of gardens. Uh, These could be turned into 97 homes, 65 of which for council rent. Paul Wright, he's chair of the Tenants and Residents Association, said, quote, the increase in the number of people living here will lead to a loss of 40% of green space per head. Another local campaigner, Janie Bellow, pointed out that 37 mature trees which are set to be felled uh, and added this is a working class community and we need these spaces for our mental health and physical health. So, Ruth, the countryside charity, CPRE, has called out councils across London for estate infilling schemes, highlighting the increased need for green space in the midst of the climate emergency. Uh, Meanwhile, there's another convincing argument for London's desperate need for council housing. Um, Where should we stand on this? Uh, Should we side with the campaigners looking out for the quality of life of the existing working class and BAME communities? Or should we be pushing for more homes for social rent?
3: I think it's an excellent question, but one for which the answer is not either. Or but both and. Like, obviously we've had a lot of very shocking proposed regeneration of various housing estates, including like Alton estates, Cressingham Gardens, where like these estates have been seen as opportunities for higher density development. But the green space that's part of these landscapes within which the housing was built is integral to their design it's not an optional disposable extra that can be seen as a commodity to be used for something else they're kind of green lungs for public benefit and use as well like their activity spaces and if you start looking at them from an experiential point of view rather than in terms of their value on a spreadsheet it really does highlight their value to a community in non-monetary terms um, so these are collective spaces to play community building and I think especially over the last year we've really noticed that importance for having those opportunities to go outside. Housing standards are so so restrained that there is very little space just being able to get outside into sort of public or semi-public spaces to literally stretch your legs is just so important and use those spaces you know the sport uses leisure uses like even allotments little tiny slot sites that are really bringing different qualities uh, to uh, the life on an estate and those places are really great I mean Am I right in thinking that a lot of these are open for open house this year as well?
1: Yeah, Cressingham Gardens, all to the state, uh, Central Hill, those are all in Open House Festival this weekend, uh, running from the 4th to the 12th September Um it's interesting because we we've covered a lot of these debates on London and, and they also frequently appear uh, in the pages of the Guardian. But they they can inflame a lot of tensions, often between like those on one side who are in favour of new affordable housing development, sometimes you know despite significant uh, social or even environmental costs. And then there's those on the other hand who are trying their best to defend the incumbent communities, uh, and, and sometimes those people are then written off as being uh, nimbys. Um, you know these rows can be really uh, heated, but in many ways you know. We all know that councils are in a really tricky situation when they find themselves trying to deliver low-cost housing. It's often out of their control. It's been pre-decided by decades of housing policy, uh, which has left a significant shortfall in the number of socially rented homes and, and, and nothing to pay for, for new ones, as well with insanely inflated house price, uh, land prices and house prices. Um, so why is it that these often like very heated debates they somehow seem incapable of shifting the the higher level consensus around national housing uh, policy, uh, which still sees the majority of subsidies going towards new home ownership, uh, for example, despite the appalling suffering of those on council housing waiting lists.
3: Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a vast issue, one which I'm sure will launch a 1000 PhDs. But, um, you know, this question of looking for additional space, no one's suggesting commandeering the gardens of the rich, even if they are excessively large, because that would be outrageous. Um, And these spaces that are part of existing estates are no, they're no less owned by the residents, just because they're shared and they're part of social housing. Um, But I think really the biggest issue here is about how councils have been offloading valuable sites and housing stock for cheap. And I mean, you think particularly about what's happened in Lambeth and Southwark. And if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be in quite the situation that we're in at the moment. Um, And I think, I mean, the point that you raised about, you know, how, how can we actually get greater agency here? I think we need to be able to get more leverage on developers, and the whole issue about viability statements about what developers are giving back to councils in terms of affordable housing or even social housing, about how that's often reduced, because you know it's just not possible to build enormous developments at Elephant and Castle without, um, and also give something back to the community because you know, they wouldn't be making enough money out of it. And those ideas about viability statements, Ollie Wainwright exposed this six years ago, um, but the councils are still not investing in the expertise to robustly challenge the resources of the developers. And so they're still forced to give in to the whims of their proposals.
1: Uh, Ollie Wainwright, design critic of The Guardian, previous guest on The Lundown. And, and certainly it's interesting when you think, you know, if you look back to like 19th and 20th centuries, compulsory purchase was used to buy like massive private land holdings for things like railways or for council estates, for example, that were built on top of them. But it rather seems now that land and that was seen as a kind of like sacrifice for the greater good industrial social progress but now it's like tiny little scraps of land have to be sacrificed for the greater good in this instance the greater good is um the unending sort of pyramid scheme of the housing ladder uh getting new new blood into the system by uh a few shared ownership or uh whatever the latest scheme is uh you know meanwhile where's the money actually being spent on the homes people need
3: no it's true i mean um I was really looking at the schools that were built across London, um, uh, in the post-war period, and the number that were actually built in the grounds of grand houses it was kind of not, uh, kind of incredible. Like I didn't think that compulsory purchase orders would really go so far as to kind of commandeer some grounds and say like we need this for the education, for state education, um, and therefore we're going to use this. I mean, it was just absolutely phenomenal. And of course, the infrastructure that we rely on today has been built on a lot of those kind of compulsory purchase orders um i mean obviously it can be used as a force (laughs) for good and evil and you know a lot of people who are living in council estates are obviously subject to compulsory purchase orders because they want them to be redeveloped so it is interesting about you know the um double agency that cpos have
1: Our next story was covered in the AJ, and it's all to do with the departure of Chloe Phelps from Common Ground Architecture, the studio she helped found and lead ahead of its planned closure. Its parent company, the Croydon Council owned house building business Brick by Brick, is being gradually dismantled, and Common Ground's work is expected to end early next year. The cash strapped council, which is facing a £1.5 billion debt mountain, unexpectedly rejected an offer from developer Urban Splash to buy Brick by Brick. including all of its projects, the workforce and the design staff employed by Common Ground. It's something we covered previously on Lundown. Uh, instead, the bankrupt borough opted to wind down the company and manage a modified build-out scenario of a handful of remaining sites. The wind-down is due to conclude in 2022, with the final projects expected to be completed by a third-party contractor in 2023. Phelps, who was Common Ground's Head of Design and the Deputy Chief Executive of Brick by Brick, has announced her plans to leave following the council's decision in order to build a new practice uh, that she'll be running herself. Ruth, who is Chloe Phelps and why is this move so significant considering what we know about how the evolution and change of architectural practices and practitioners can have a major impact on our built environment?
3: Chloe's role, I think, has been absolutely fascinating and I've been watching this... Bill from when she started Uh, when she left practice and joined the Croydon placemaking team back in 2014 and she was following the footsteps of people like Finn Williams who's since gone on to set up public practice and is now the city architect for Malmo. Uh, Really people who have a real interest and investment in civic architecture and local authority work. So working with Vincent Lacavara at a time when they were really employing architects back in councils again. So trying to get back to that halcyon time that I was researching in the London County Council post-war, where they could make strategic planning making decisions um, and use architectural services and insight beyond the boundaries of what we really consider to be an architect role defined by practice, kind of much more collaborative role and transdisciplinary role. Um, So it was really interesting what they were doing in the Croydon placemaking team and then with the advent of Brick by Brick, which is Croydon Council's development company which they set up in about 2015 2016 it was used as an opportunity to ve- deliver homes for sale and rent by the council and they were in a- it enabled them to intervene in a manner which was able to accelerate the development to meet the targets for housing and step in where commercial interests weren't viable so this kind of balance that we've been talking about the between feasibility and need was something that we are able to address because it takes a lot of those commercial decisions away to a certain extent. And it is paralleled by the London County Council. And um, the way that the Architects Department was set up there was really because through the process of slum redevelopment, they realised that they were paying contractors to go and clear sites which they were now having to buy back and they were having to pay someone to go and construct on them and then they had the housing that they so desperately needed but they could actually close the loop and take that within the ownership of the council they were building so much that they could pool a lot of these resources and so there is a kind of an advantage of scale so with brick by brick trying to emulate that um they were able to instigate a lot of collaboration between their kind of in-house architects but also to have private practice commissions which are a lot of the things that we've seen uh, in the projects that have resulted as well which gives you more variety in the kind of schemes that they are building it reduces the risk um, that the council has to adopt for kind of outsourcing their architectural expertise for certain projects you get a much more collaborative approach and kind of fresh ideas that are coming in at the same time but because of this overarching umbrella of brick by brick, they were able to share the resourcing of materials. So it gets better buying power. You can spend more time on development. You think about um, procurement frameworks that you can invite people on to cut a lot of the time lag that's involved in these ordinarily, um, purely because of the scale of development they had across the whole of the borough. Um, and they even set up, I think, a strategy where they knew the kind of palettes that would get through planning. They weren't given a kind of carte blanche through planning, but they ha- developed a kind of palette that would be acceptable. So they used these across a lot of the schemes that they were developing. And this it is an incredibly complex series of relationships. So the fact that then Chloe's con- gone from the Croydon placemaking team to brick by brick to common ground architecture, which I think launched in 2017 as a in its own right. I mean, it was wonderful to see it celebrated this year as one of the Architects' Journals 40 Under 40 and that acknowledgement of the collaborative approach and also kind of civic architecture taking the kind of kudos once again was really wonderful. Um, it's interesting their position because obviously they're working for Brick by Brick but also they could work with other authorities and use the expertise that they've been developing in Croydon across other boroughs as well. And for Croydon Council, the advantage of having an architect who can stay client side, who has their interests in mind, gives a lot of continuity on projects, which is often lacking. And I think if you look at some of the housing schemes that, you know, are quite evidently badly resolved, it's usually because the over the courses of the procurement and construction process, a lot of the team has changed, a lot of the interests have changed purely because of the way the construction contracts are set up in this country. So, it's kind of been, I think, an increasingly common um, setup. Uh, and this idea about the kind of greater fluidity that architects can have in practice now, that it's not necessarily this kind of traditional hierarchical singular hero architect, that kind of Ayn Rand fountainhead figure. It's much more collaborative, it's much about listening, orchestrating, um, so very much more behind the scenes and less visible. But people who still really love like you know a really good window reveal detail <laughs> who are being part of these greater projects as well
1: I think it's really really interesting hearing you describe common ground and like certainly that like unique skill set like the ability to to work collaboratively to think in the long term to think of the circular economy approach to to sites and to also know that. Like that is something that's quite acknowledged as being lacking in both public and private sector development right now. So it seems like like Chloe's sort of like going into the world and setting up a new practice that is pretty much spot on uh, what, the, what the market and the industry need right now.
3: Yeah, absolutely. But um, I think this kind of switch from public to private practice, if you want to term it that way, um, has been something which is common. And going back to my my key interest the london county council um a lot of the projects that they had uh were given out to people who were leaving the department small schemes to help start up their practice and use that expertise they knew that there were people who they could collaborate with they knew that um they were people who ha- would have the right kind of like interests at heart and especially schools buildings are projects which are handed on to people who are leaving the council This knowledge sharing between the public and private sector can only be beneficial and the territorial definition is more of a kind of like it's a false construct really because we're all working on both sides at all time and so the fact that you know like it might be in some way adversarial I think is uh, probably a misnomer and what better way way to develop having a sensitive understanding about why planning is difficult and finding ways to work with rather than against it than to come from a council background. And I think also it really helps for developers to find opportunities to develop new briefs rather than resting on like prevalent housing projects and predetermined markets for the kind of projects they take on. So again, it's like cultivating a greater community of listening, sharing and empathy, which I think really can only be a good thing.
1: Our final story is all to do with the RIBA Awards and Mansa Medal, which have been covered by the AJ this week. The RIBA London Awards have been handed to 46 projects, including Glenn Howell's Architect's New Home for the English National Ballet, which was named the Capital's 2021 Building of the Year. Peter Barber Architects also swept the board with four of its affordable and council housing projects picking up trophies. Uh, two higher education projects in Kingston shared the London Region's Client of the Year Award, that's the Kingston School of Art, uh, recognised for its deep retrofitted facilities by Howard Tompkins, and the Kingston University uh, London Uh, Grafton designed townhouse Uh, David Chipperfield's reworking of the Royal Academy took home the Conservation Award while the Eccleston Yards retrofit by Buckley Gray Yeoman won the Sustainability Award Um, RIBA London Award winners will now be considered for a coveted RIBA National Award in recognition of their architectural excellence Uh, those are going to be announced on Thursday the 9th of September next week Um, the shortlist for the RIBA Sterling Prize for the best building of the year will in turn then be drawn from the RIBA National Award winning projects later in this year. Um, so alongside this announcement, uh, we also heard of the 10 finalists for the Mansa Medal. Uh, it's an award recognising innovation in the best one-off homes in the UK. It's an collective mix of one-off homes ranging from simple brick passive house in rural Devon uh, to several end-of-terraced homes in London. Uh, among the finalists, a Tonkin Loo's conversion of a water tower into an extraordinary steampunk-inspired home for a photographer in Norfolk and Spatial Affair Bureau's artist studio home on a construction, strained cul-de-sac plot in bovary mews north london um so ruth what are the riba london awards and um what are some of the standout winners for you this year
3: what are the awards is uh, yeah it's a very big question <laughs> um and i think one that's been debated in many pubs uh, up and down the country probably like why what are we rewarding and you know what for who to um I think there's a lot of controversy with these awards especially when it's architects awarding themselves awards you know it's our own body who are dictating what is good and obviously like every year it crops up in the press There's this kind of public outrage You're like i can't believe they think this is you know what we want um and so i think we really need to be more open about what that question is like what are the parameters that determine this award and i mean one of the things that was really controversial back in 2016 was about FAT's House for Essex not being nominated for the Reba East Awards. And because it wasn't nominated for the local awards, it was excluded then from the National Awards and from the Sterling Prize. And I think that that decision was really quite perplexing to a lot of people because if it is about sort of really having the haute couture of architecture is something that's really pushing the boundaries there couldn't have been another project that was pushing more boundaries than that that year um and if it's something that's like well you know that's just too far out there it needs to be something which is like more reproducible which is more applicable to the kind of general housing crisis then why are we awarding these other ones are you know is that one of the criteria that is used for judging these awards what is what is it that we're valuing and i think it's a question that i find myself asking every year and i haven't come up with an answer i mean what do you think are the qualities that they're after well it's a tricky
1: one i think like um as a journalist or as, like, a non-architect, sometimes you can just just quickly look at the RIBA London Award winners and just say, oh, look, these are the nice, shiny buildings in London this year. Or, like, these are the buildings architects rate. Uh, But like you say, like, uh, you know, what is architecture and what is the sort of wider social and environmental quest? It's not just about making nice things that look good in photographs. uh, Or certainly isn't in the year 2021, and it can't be much longer. Um, But, yeah, it's... it's, um, it's a tricky one because obviously there's a lot of respect for architects and the ability of architects to sort of disturb, discern what is good architecture.
3: There there are some there are some great schemes on these lists, so I'm not dismissing it totally. I mean, there's just some fantastic things. I think, you know, the Phoenix Garden Community Building by Opisjan Architecture is a wonderful space as a, a building. That kind of like tectonic qualities about the way the materials are brought together and how it's really sensitively thought through. And you look at the photographs and you kind of really want to be there. You know, it seems like a space which is just primed for kind of like life activity and community. And obviously it serves a great social purpose as well. But the social purpose seems to be a kind of like almost an, an add on and you know there's some phenomenal feats of material ingenuity that are going on with people like 3144 architects in the corner house you know they're real experts on brick and like following that lineage of the pro- uh, projects which have preceded it you know it's really lovely to see someone really reveling in the craft of making a building
1: well, so, like certainly in this sort of context of awards and the debate about what awards are um you know along came open city's uh, very own stewardship awards so uh, early this month finalists uh, announced uh, these awards they focus on the long-term care uh, of the urban realm they look at things like what is environmentally sustainable uh, and socially uh, sustainable um and um i guess there's that question and obviously there were other awards which have been going, like the aj retrofit awards very established been going for many years um you know do things like this potentially sort of shift the debate um and uh, you know could that be uh yeah, part of a bigger change certainly like Lacaton and Vassal winning the Pritzker prize seemed like a, like a, a big shock uh, but actually maybe that shouldn't be a shock maybe that's actually where awards like things like uh, taking us
3: a giant huge fan of Lacaton and Vassal and for me that project kind of ticked all the boxes of what it is to take joy in the process of architecture i mean architectural design is a constant negotiation of really difficult constraints from site parameters and budget and trying to like squeeze in all the necessary functions and making sure that it is like actually a pleasant experience for the users Um, and so to see that that project which really went against the idea that an architect has to have a very statement building you know that they're starting from a completely blank canvas and it's uh, a creation of their own imagination and nothing else really kind of turned it on its heads so that to me seemed like a great Turning point and an acknowledgement of you know what architecture can be, and it's really lovely to see projects like the new Interold Arch- um, Award from the Architects Journal and the McEwen Awards recognizing the environmental and social sustainability that architecture can inspire from the ROBA Journal to really kind of flip this model of what we celebrate and instead acknowledge the fact that you know it's not about total control it's about a kind of contingency and a response to very difficult negotiations that take place from concept through procurement through construction like literally being on site with like wet cement being thrown around and having conversations with brickies about you know how it's all going together you know that that kind of joy is something which we don't get to see or Outside of the profession, I think we don't get to communicate, really, uh, and so we only celebrate the end product. And I think that's why it's inherently problematic because, as a kind of like public consumption of architect, you think, well, why that? And it's really hard, therefore, to kind of like retrospect, like, oh, you know, you know, it's this negotiation of rights of light. It was something about material reuse, and they're like, yeah, but you know, I don't, I don't like it, ultimately. So I think it's it's down to a kind of communication and about what we celebrate in the media of what architecture is as well. I think it's a really big question.
1: Yeah, certainly, and I'm just looking at that those finalists for that stewardship awards, Open City Stewardship Awards, and there's things like the management of Covent Garden Market, uh, a meanwhile community project in Tolworth, uh, a pioneering thatched university building by Archetype Architects. So yeah, certainly sort of outside the scope of what's normally recognised. Um, but just coming back to things like you know the corner house and the the Water Tower and things like that, and the Manser Awards, um, which you know possibly like for an outsider seems to almost entirely focus on dwellings for like wealthy homeowners. Um, you know, why is something like this you know, so celebrated by architects and such an important part of architectural culture, you know, even despite the fact that most people in society you know, will never commission their own home, uh, perhaps only get to go inside places like these on special occasions where they're opened up to the public, like, like Open House, which is happening this weekend. Um, you know, why is this such a big part of our culture?
3: I think there's a very fetishistic culture and looking down through some of those photographs, seeing, you know, one of the projects has got this grand piano that you can see is like reflected through a full height glass windows and you think like who who lives like this? I I I don't live like this. Um I don't know many people who do. Um and so is it something which really genuinely trickles down into how more like mass housing is made? Or is it something which, you know, we can bring to other projects, something which is, yet yeah, more, more publicly celebratory? I think, you know, the, the joy of Open House is being able to take a look and a sneak peek into these lifestyles that ordinarily we're not party to. And there's a kind of, like, a projection of, like, wow, wouldn't it be lovely to live here? But wouldn't it be lovely, actually, if we could capture those qualities and apply them
2: elsewhere?
1: Ruth, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The London this week. It's been fantastic. Hope you can join us again in the future. Um, where can listeners keep up to speed on your ride? Right- and your projects and other things where should they go
3: i have a very embarrassingly old handle that i refuse to get rid of where i am Sunday Girl on twitter
1: fantastic well thanks again for coming on the show and hope you can join us again in the future it's been it's been great
3: thanks so much for having me it's been wonderful
1: you've been listening to the london a show from open city rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in london if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at @opencitylondon or by using the hashtag #lnddnwn. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.